As we continue in our worship this morning, we come to our time of instruction and our passage for our um, Bible teaching this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's verses 11 to 15. Uh, it's the same passage we began considering last week. So I would invite you to turn there in your electronic Bible, your um, hardbound Bible, your paperback Bible, whatever uh, you have, but also we have it provided for you as I would read it upon the screen this morning. Hear the word of God. Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So today we're going to be looking at Paul's biblical reasons why women have a restriction placed upon them, the restriction from authoritative teaching. Let's pray as we begin, because this is a, a critical passage and uh, one that uh, is confounding uh, to many people. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that uh, you would give us great wisdom, great insight, and a full measure of your spirit uh, to read and to read clearly and to explain and to explain faithfully, uh, to find the meaning of the text, to understand it, and to present it in a way, Lord, that helps us to understand uh, why things are the way they are, why you do the things that you do, and to be able to honor you and to honor Christ, your son, and be led by your spirit in all of this. So we commit this time of looking at your word to you. Our Father, uh, this is a world that uh, has many, many voices speaking in many, many different directions. We are thankful that we have the voice that comes from eternity, the voice that comes from heaven, even your own voice and words to us in the scriptures that you've given. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we have pointed out recently, um, everything that the Apostle Paul is writing in this letter to 1 Timothy, which not only goes to 1 Timothy, but also to the church at Ephesus, everything that Paul has been writing has a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is found in chapter 3, something we're going to be looking at in a few weeks, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So let me just read that purpose for why Paul is writing. He says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, note why Paul writes what he writes. The people of God are supposed to know how to conduct themselves, how to conduct themselves as the household of God, with a recognition that the household of God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And as we've been looking at 1 Timothy, we recognize that the central truth, the most significant truth that we are concerned about is what we would call the gospel truth. Uh, the gospel expressed in words such as these. Uh, this is a faithful statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or even earlier in chapter two, where we have read that uh, in light of the prayer that we should pray for all people, all manner of people, we know that it's God's desire to see that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
that God has given uh, one man as a mediator between God and man, even Christ Jesus, his own son, who is a ransom for all people, uh, the truth that has been presented at the present time. So we understand that the, that the overriding truth that the Apostle Paul is concerned about, of which the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, is the gospel message. The gospel message that we, broken and sinful human beings, uh, can be saved. We can be saved through the work of his son. So we come then to what Paul is writing. He's talking about order within the church. And he's talking about the role of women. That's what we've been looking at uh, the last couple of weeks. And last week, we noted that in verses uh, 11 and 12, he spoke about a restriction upon a certain aspect of a woman's ministry within the church. And specific, that restriction uh, pertained to authoritative teaching, not teaching generally, uh, not teaching in a dozen or so different ways in which women can teach. But specifically, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have an authority over men. Teaching with authority, authoritative teaching. Uh, Paul puts that restriction upon women, and he does so because he's guided and directed to do so according to the plan of Christ, the plan that Christ has for his church. So last Sunday, we looked at verses 11 and 12. Um, we, we examined the nature of this restriction, and we, we recognize what the nature of authoritative teaching happens to be. Well, it's that kind of teaching that we would find uh, in the next chapter, associated with the elders, shepherds, pastors of the church. It's, it's that authoritative teaching that comes from the word of God for the people of God, to feed the people of God. It's that kind of authoritative teaching that the Bible associates with those who are ordained unto this purpose of shepherding and feeding the flock. Now, today we're going to look at verses uh, 13, 14, and 15, and to be honest, only verse 13. Um, 13, 14, and 15 set out uh, Paul's biblical reasons for why this restriction is there. Um, and his statements are deeply anchored at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. The ultimate authority that uh, undergirds everything that Paul is going to say is what we find in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. But Paul's position doesn't really start there. Uh, rather, we need to remember uh, the deeper foundation, the deeper foundational convictions of all of the apostles, uh, even Christ himself, that we find there underneath everything that's written in the New Testament. So for Paul and for all the writers of the New Testament, for Jesus himself, let me mention three things. First of all, as a foundational conviction, what Scripture says, God says. That is to say, if the Bible teaches it, then that's what God is teaching. Secondly, we should know that God designed the human race as male and female with equal spiritual value, equal moral value, even though he gave to them different roles. Having different roles doesn't violate their essential equality before God. And along with this, we don't have any authority to change what God himself has designed. Then thirdly, Paul, uh, like the rest of the apostles of Christ, had the authority and had the responsibility to declare God's truth on these matters, all the matters that pertain to the life of the church. 
And therefore, what Paul teaches, as he himself has said, what Paul teaches is the command of Christ. So these basic biblical truths reinforce all that Paul is going to say when he lays down his biblical reasons for why women are going to be restricted from the role of authoritative teaching uh, with respect to men and within the life of the church. So here's here's sort of the main point that we're going to be developing. Paul restricts women from exercising authoritative teaching over men within the church because that's the very design of Christ for the sake of the church. That's what Christ has designed. And the design of Christ for the church is anchored in how God created men and women at the time of creation. So if we were to look at verses 13, 14, and 15 before us, if we were to look at those those uh, three brief statements, we could see that each one of them, in their order, reflect the three basic themes of the Bible. Verse 13 reflects the theme of creation. Verse 14 reflects the theme of the fall. And verse 15 reflects the theme of redemption. Paul develops his argument based upon the, the large and great narrative themes of the Bible. And we could put it this way. He's going to relate what he says to the authority of the Genesis account with respect to creation. He's going to relate what he says with respect to the fall in terms of the conditions of the fall. And then he's going to re relate what he says with respect to redemption to the certainty of redemption, verses 13, 14, and 15. Now, this morning, we only have time to look at the authority of creation. Uh, nevertheless, there's an assumption of familiarity as we look at Genesis chapter 2, as we look at uh, the authority of creation. Paul clearly assumes that Timothy, to whom he's writing, who's the pastor at Ephesus, and the church at Ephesus, Ephesus itself, that all these people are extensively familiar with the Genesis story, with the Genesis chapters, with everything that uh, we find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 particularly. Paul's three statements, verse 13, 14, 15, require us to accept this because they each one of these statements has a tremendous amount of background context that we find in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So this morning, you could also have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 2. That would be very helpful. We're going to be looking at the authority that we find in creation and in the creation account. So what Paul says in verse 13, it assumes Genesis chapter 2 and everything that's in it. It assumes that Genesis chapter 2 is normative and it's authoritative. But, you know, Paul making that assumption, um, he's in good company. Because when we read the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus himself made that same assumption that Genesis chapter two uh, is normative and it's authoritative. In fact, you should perhaps note Matthew 19 in this regard. Uh, in Matthew 19, Jesus has a debate with the Pharisees over the subject of, of marriage. And Jesus anchors everything he says back into Genesis chapter two. Uh, he basically maintains that the authority of his argument against the Pharisees is, in fact, the authority that's grounded in these early chapters of Genesis. So when we read what Paul says, we have to recognize that any issue that we might have with Paul 
as he depends upon Genesis chapter 2? Well, we would have the same issue with Christ. By the way, uh, that Paul and Christ relationship and Christ's relationship to the scripture, it's, it's that very principle uh, that drove me during my college days to to acknowledge the Bible's infallibility, to acknowledge the Bible's inerrancy. I realized that to be a true Christian, I needed to have the same view of the Bible that Jesus Christ did. And Jesus himself is the one who said, the scriptures cannot be broken. Now, moving on to verse 13. This is his first point. Uh, the first point that he grounds in the Bible, he grounds it in Genesis chapter 2. And he addresses the question, why are women restricted from authoritative teaching? So this is what Paul says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's what Genesis 2 tells us. God did not create Adam and Eve at the same time. Rather, there was a significant uh, sequence of events between the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve. So let's just review them. If we look at Genesis 2. Verse 7, God forms man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostril the breath of life. God transforming what had been inanimate matter, and the Hebrew word there refers to dust, earth, or soil, transforms that into a living creature, Adam. Then secondly, Genesis 2.15, God takes the man that he's created and puts him into the garden, the Garden of Eden, in order to work it and to keep it. Then thirdly, we find Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where God commands the man with regard to all of the trees in the garden, and especially the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man isn't to eat of that tree, for in the day that he eats of it, he's going to certainly die. So Adam is supposed to keep that tree separated from the rest of the trees, separated from human usage, and that's to keep the tree sacred sacred unto God, not touchable, not eatable by human beings. That's God's command. Fourthly, Genesis 2.18, God declares that it's not good for the man to be alone. So God states his intention to make for Adam a helper that is fit for him. Fifthly, Genesis 2.19 and 20, God brings all the animals uh, before Adam. For Adam to name all of the animals, but when Adam does all of this, there is not found a helper that's fit or suitable to him. And then sixthly, uh, Genesis 2, 21 and 22, God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep and removes a rib from his body. And then God makes and fashions from the rib into the woman and brings her to Adam. And then seventh, Genesis 2, 23, Adam responds with his declaration about the woman. She is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She's going to be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She's going to be called woman because she was taken out of man. So when Paul says that Adam was formed first, that statement is packed full of all this Genesis chapter two information. Now, let's look at Paul's argument then more specifically with all these ideas in mind. First, Paul is saying that Adam was formed first. Second, 
He's saying that Adam was given the authority and responsibility to take care of the garden. Thirdly, Adam was given the authority and the responsibility to name all the animals. And then fourthly, Adam was given the authority and the responsibility to protect the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to treat it as set apart, sacred unto God, not for human use. All of this responsibility and authority God gave to Adam before Eve was ever created. And then fifthly, it's out of Adam's own rib, out of the man, that God creates the woman. So Adam is himself the actual physical source of Eve's physical existence. And then sixth, Adam was given the authority and responsibility to also name Eve the special creation of God, the one that God created fit for him. And he did so. We read this in Genesis 3.20, that Adam called her Eve because she was to be the mother of all the living human beings. So when Paul points out that Adam was formed first, he's pointing to every single way that God gave Adam authority and responsibility with respect to this world, whereas none of these things were specifically given to Eve. Eve does not carry the authority and responsibility that Adam was given. Now, what does that mean? Well, several things that it means. First, if a garden isn't worked and taken care of, we have to lay that at the feet of Adam. If an animal somehow doesn't have its proper name, we have to lay this to the blame of Adam. If the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't kept sacred, it is Adam who has failed in his divine commandment and commission to keep it sacred. Fourthly, if the woman fails in her created design to be that helper fit for Adam, Adam himself has failed in some manner to carry out his authority and responsibility towards her and towards God. The point is, God's design in creation is God's authoritative design. So when God created Adam first, God gave Adam authority and responsibility over this world that he had created. Now, clearly, God didn't create Adam to carry out all of these responsibilities alone. Eve was created second to be a helper fit for him, a complement to him, but the ultimate authority and responsibility rested on Adam. As we commonly say, the buck stops here. The buck stops with Adam. Now, what's the proof of this? People may say, well, you're just thinking that's the case. No, the Bible in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, gives us the proof that all of this responsibility and authority and blame if things go badly rest upon Adam and Adam alone. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, the Apostle Paul lays out an extensive and very significant parallel description between Adam and Christ. It's actually what we would call an antithetical parallelism. It's, it's an, a parallelism of contrast. That passage is about Adam's role in the fall of the human race, the entire fall of the human race. And it's Adam and Adam alone who's presented as the head of humankind. It's Adam and Adam alone 
who's charged with the blame and responsibility for the fall of the human race. God does not blame Eve for the fall of the human race. Adam is the one who carries all of that ultimate legal, moral, spiritual blame. Now, to summarize, then, Paul's argument is anchored in the authority of creation. Here we find the most basic reason why women should be restricted from authoritative teaching. God assigned a primary kind of authority to Adam, to the man, and not to Eve, the woman. It is a creation design. So in the household of God within the church, this creation structure, this creation design is to be established, it's to be respected, and it's to be practiced. So we would remember that in the life of the church, women may certainly teach in multiple ways and in multiple settings. The restriction placed upon them is only upon authoritative teaching. A woman is not permitted to teach or to have this kind of authority over a man. That kind of authority is given to those whom God has called to be shepherd, elders, pastors of the church. Now, uh, my message perhaps is a bit shorter this morning than, than uh, what will happen next week, perhaps, or the week after. Uh, because I just wanted to focus upon this one point. Uh, verse 13, the order of creation the roles that God has given in creation, where we as human beings created fully equal as image bearers of God, uh, fully equal in value, fully equal in our moral status and spiritual status before God. And ultimately, with respect to God's working out of all things, we are equally necessary to God's whole plan for the human race. There's no question about that. But in that equality, of value and the quality of purpose, there is the distinction and difference in terms of the roles that God has created. Um, as we noted last week, the larger context for what Paul says here in chapter two is chapter three, where Paul will go on to talk about the, the qualifications for those who are going to be uh, elders and overseers and pastor shepherds of the church. Paul, what Paul says here in chapter two directly uh, affects how we're going to understand and treat chapter three. But it's also important to note that God's design in establishing these different roles can never be interpreted as, quote, men just have a better skill set than women do. Um, you may have heard that. Well, let's make it clear. That's bad theology. And it's simply false about women. In fact, I just want to let you know that uh, for help on this particular passage, I consulted the opinion of two women, one who is a dear friend and one who is the wife of a very well-known pastor. So I asked for I asked my friend, this female lady friend, strong Christian, one of the sharpest minds that I know, I asked her for her review on this passage and especially verse 15. That helped me tremendously in my own understanding as I worked through and grappled what Paul was saying. But then I went to a second woman who happens to be the wife of Tim Keller. He's that uh, very well-known and famous New York City pastor whose wife, Kathy, 
is very well trained theologically, who's also the author of a small book upon this subject matter. So I didn't go to her directly, uh, but I actually went to her book and bought her book and read her book and, and felt that here is a woman who intelligently treats this passage and gives important insights into its meaning. But it was one of Kathy Keller's stories that I found most helpful. Uh, it's a story about Elizabeth Elliot, who was one of Kathy's professors back in the 70s at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, for those who might not know the name, might not recognize her, she was the wife and widow of Jim Elliot, one of the five missionary men who were killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador in 1956. Elizabeth went on to serve as a missionary to the Akas. She even uh, was privileged to see that the killer of her own husband uh, came to Christ and became one of her dear friends. Now, eventually, Mrs. Elliott uh, became a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and that is where Kathy, Keller, Kathy Keller's story comes in. And so I'm just going to quote now from what Kathy has written. In one unforgettable lecture, Elizabeth Elliott taught me to distinguish between gifts and the roles in which those gifts might be used. She announced to her class of both men and women that she had better gifts for being a pastor than most of the men in the class, possibly the entire seminary. She knew the Bible in multiple languages, had vast experience in expositing it, had the maturity bought through suffering to speak with compassion to others, and on and on. However, Elizabeth Elliot said, God has not called me as a woman to exercise those gifts in a pastoral role. I am called to use them. But why should they only be valuable if used in one particular role, the ordained ministry? And Kathy Keller remarks that that helped her to see that it's not our giftedness specifically, but it's the design of God in terms of terms of our roles that really sets the agenda for how we're supposed to minister in the church. Now, Elizabeth Elliot wasn't boasting about her abilities. If you knew her life, if you knew her experiences, if you knew the books that she had read, you would know that she was just simply honestly stating what God had given to her, a vast amount of ability. Yet, it was her biblical conviction that God had given her the role of a woman, not the role of a man, and that she was not called to be someone ordained to preach or to teach. She wasn't to exercise any kind of biblical, spiritual teaching authority over men. And yet that God-given restriction did not restrict her from serving fully and faithfully within the body of Christ, according to the role and the gifts that God had designed for her. So to conclude, we follow scripture and how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Amen.